It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. again and welcome everyone to Mutual Presents. And this week's episode begins of course with pirate music written and composed by Sharon B. Mutual Presents is a little periodic show in which we give you a glimpse to some of the new and incredible things you can experience at the Mutual Audio Network outside of our regular network feed. Every day on the Mutual Audio YouTube we release classic radio drama from the days of the Mutual Broadcasting Network. What's on Thursdays on the YouTube you may ask? Well, I'll tell you. Every day on the Mutual Audio YouTube, we release classic radio drama from the days of the Mutual Broadcasting Network. And Thursdays, since our operation began in March, have been all about this classic adventure series, Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Which was a radio drama portraying the adventures of a 78-foot catch, the Scarlet Queen, in the South Pacific. It was broadcast on Mutual from the 3rd of July, 1947, to the 14th of February in 1948. Each episode opens with an entry from the ship's log, such as, Log Entry, The Catch, Scarlet Queen, Philip Kearney, Master. Position, 3 degrees, 7 minutes north, 104 degrees, 2 minutes east. Wind. Fresh to moderate, sky fair. With a similar closing. Ship secured for the night. Signed, Philip Carney, master. That's a terrible voice. They might arrive at an exciting port of call. The captain and first mate would go ashore and immediately run into trouble with local authorities and agents of rival merchants or desperate women in need of rescue. After some investigation, at least one good fight, they would solve the problem, get back on the ship and sail away. Kearney and Gallagher share a laugh and a drink at the wheel before the captain's closing log entry. So without further ado, let's turn back the clock and listen to Mutual's thrilling saga. Position, 123 degrees, 8 minutes west, 37 degrees, 31 minutes north. Gyro compass course, 237. Wind, fresh. Sky, fair. Remarks, cleared port of San Francisco at 2.30 p.m. Sailing delayed 19 hours due to death of first officer. Cause of death, the Shanghai secret.
stood there on the pier that evening, the ache in my frame reminding me that the last long, hard day of loading stores was behind me, and watched a China-bound freighter feeling her way out into the fog-shrouded harbor. The Scarlet Queen nudged her fenders against the dock right below me, her bright work shining like costume jewelry even in the failing light. She was beautiful in her new white paint, and she was mine all 78 feet of her. She rose and fell just a little, delicately, lifting the carved wood figure under her bowsprit out of the shadows now and then. A fresh young body looking forward, bold, teasing, dressed in only a crown and painted brilliant red. The Scarlet Queen, the woman my own particular world revolved around. But that gray San Francisco evening wasn't cut out for romance between man and lacquered wood. I didn't hear him as he walked up behind me, but it didn't take me long to pick up the odor of a jail cell after he opened his mouth. You, Philip Carney? Yeah, that's right. I'm Kessel, San Francisco homicide. You know a man named David R. Malone? Yeah, he's my chief mate. What'd he do? He died. Come on, you got a date at headquarters. Wait a minute. It's a little sudden on a full stomach. What happened to him? The books are going to call it murder by a person or persons unknown. Homicide wants to know you better. And so Mutual begins The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. Scarlet Queen, broadest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry into the log. And every week, a league further in the strange voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Your last name first and middle initial. Carney Philip M. Age? 29. Height? Six, two and a half. Wage? 207. Eyes blue, hair brown. Scars or other identifying marks? Yeah, a tattoo. A three-strand Turk's head on my right bicep. A what? A three-strand Turk's head. It's a knot, you know. Or does somebody else tie your shoelaces? Castle, I'm getting awful sick of this. Shut up, man. Answer the question. Address? The Catch Scarlet Queen. Street number? Street number? How... Pier 48, birth 2, Embarcadero. Not permanent. That'll be enough for now, O'Brien. That might be a pretty permanent address at that, Connie. Not with me paying the rent. I got my port clearance and I'm leaving tomorrow. Maybe you are, Connie. How long had you known Malone? Since, uh, oh, about five days. Not about, Connie. How long? Five days. I signed him on five days ago. Uh-huh. When'd you see him last? Exactly. Uh, between 12.30 and 1 this afternoon, I saw his stern end going around the warehouse at Pier 48. He turned to the right, exactly. He went to room 218, the Crown Hotel on Columbus Avenue, the North Beach section. Why? Because he's human, I suppose. They build hotels for people to go into. He didn't look human when we found him. Look, Kessel. I don't know anything about it. I'm sorry Malone's dead. He was a nice guy. But that's all I can give you. If you want an alibi, I've got four seamen who loaded stores with me all day. That'll carry me to the time you tap me on the shoulder. What do you want, a halo? <laughs> That's all right, it's all right. Just don't get sore, Connie. Here, you want a cigarette? No, thanks. All I want is a cab back to the Embarcadero. On you. Sure, sure, we'll take care of it. 
Just a couple more questions. Oh, stop. That patience act fits you about like a bare midriff evening gown. Take it off. Get comfortable. Thanks, Connie. I will. What could Malone have learned on your Scarlet Queen that somebody would go to a lot of trouble to get out of him? What are you talking about, Kessel? Malone was tortured. That's what I'm talking about. For a good long time. And then somebody slipped. They lost their temper. He didn't know anything. He didn't know why $50,000 was deposited in your name last year? I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, Barrett, bring Funston in. The name Funston rang just a faint bell for me, but I recognized the little guy they brought in all right. If there was anybody who knew about my banking business, he did. He worked there in the assistant cashier's office. Down there, he was just another face looking at you through rimless glasses. Here, he looked like trouble. Mr. Funston, is this the man you say received that $50,000 letter of credit? Uh, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Carney, but the police, you know. Uh, yes, sir, he's the man. Remind me to bank someplace else next time. That's all, Mr. Funston. Thank you. I, I hope you understand, Mr. Carney. I had to answer the Cast question. off, Funston. I'll thank you later. You guys have got long noses, haven't you? Yeah. When things smell as rotten as this... It was deposited in the San Francisco bank while you were in China with the Marines. Where are you getting this, Kessel? It was sent over as a letter of credit from a firm in Shanghai called Kang and Son. Most of it went to a local shipyard where your Scarlet Queen was built and to a flock of coast companies for your cargo. Fifty thousand mystery dollars, Connie. And a voyage to nowhere. I won it in a crap game and my articles say Honolulu. Ah, Honolulu. With enough stores aboard for a two-year cruise? Who do you think you're kidding, Connie? Why don't you talk? Why don't you get tired? You're pumping a lot of bilge flush. You're bluffing your heart out, and you know it. All right, Connie, you can go. But it's about time. But uh, you'll be at Pier 48 when we want you. What do you mean by that? The Coast Guard's a cooperative outfit. Your port clearance has been revoked until this is cleaned up. I'll uh, call you when I want you again. <laughs> I would have traded places with any engine room hand on any Great Lakes ore ship after I left Kessel. And I hate fresh water almost as much as I hate engine rooms. Kang had warned me when I signed with him in Shanghai. The opposition, he called him. An octopus with a body in an office building in Hong Kong, a brain called Constantino, and the tentacles groping across the world for the prize Kang was sending me after. A $10 million prize somewhere in the South Pacific. Its exact location was Kang's secret. And Constantino was ready to bribe, steal, or murder to get that secret. I didn't know who his San Francisco tentacle was, but I did know that it had killed Malone. I knew that he'd been tortured for something even I didn't know. The true destination of the Scarlet Queen. It was 7.30 by the time I got back to the Queen. I checked a mooring lines, went into my cabin, poured myself two quick, stiff drinks, and started to clean a 45 automatic I'd gotten out of the habit of wearing. If Constantino's machine had gone into operation, I figured it might be a healthy habit to get back into. I had it stripped and spread out on my desk. And that's when I met Gallagher. Big Red Gallagher. Hello, Skipper. Who the devil are you and how'd you get aboard? I wanted to talk to you. I'm Red Gallagher. Where's my gangway watch? He's got orders. Nobody aboard. He tried, Skipper. Don't blame him. But you know how it is. I wanted to talk to you. He didn't have to explain. He held up a hand about the size of a fielder's glove and rubbed the knuckles as if they were bruised. He didn't have to say any more. He was about my size wearing a shapeless stained white duck officer's cap. 
faded dungarees and a jumper with the sleeves rolled up. His face was heavy-featured but not flat. His eyes gray and set off by crow's feet wrinkles and squinting into the sun. And they were laughing at me. But no harm done, Skipper. He hasn't hurt bad. Maybe he wasn't big enough to put you over the side. Now, huh? wait a minute, Skipper. Take it easy. We'll just bust up a lot of furniture and lose a lot of skin that way. Don't be so jumpy. All right, unload in a hurry and get out of here, then. What do you want? I hear you're looking for a new chief mate, and I want to sign on. Where did you hear I was looking for a new chief mate? I got a friend at the mall. He keeps me a beam of these things. Uh-huh. Is the rest of the story for sale? What story, Skipper? Is there something I should know? I don't like your trim, Gallagher. Maybe it's because you think you can get a berth after knocking my crewman around. Maybe it's because I think you're lying in your teeth. Either way, I wouldn't get into a dory with you. Wait a minute, Skipper. I was made for this trip. I know that South Pacific. How do you know where I'm going? Maybe that scarlet beauty under your bowsprit whispered to me. You're too nosy for me, Gallagher. Get your sea boots off the ship. I'm manned and loaded and ready to shove as soon as I get clearance. When do you think that'll be, Skipper? What do you mean by that? There you go, getting jumpy again. That was a civil question. I just wanted to know how long, that's all. It'll be as quick as I can make it. Yeah. I guess I can't blame you for that, but maybe it'll be long enough for me to try again. You need me on this ship, Skipper. I've lived a long time without you. Keep your eye on the newspaper shipping columns, Gallagher. That's as close as you'll come to my sailing. After he left, I reassembled the 45, checked my naval code on the disposition and effects of deceased seamen, and started to get Malone's gear together. In the pocket of one of his coats, I found a match folder from the Gorgonio, a bar advertising pre-war liquor and continuous entertainment. On the inside, somebody had written a name, Helen, and a number that straightened me up like a right to the chin. It was 218, the number of the murder room at the Crown Hotel. Twenty minutes later, I was at the Gorgonio. It was a typical non-tourist North Beach bar. Good, healthy fishermen up from Fisherman's Wharf. Three women at the bar, and one sitting at the electric organ up on a platform. None of them had Helen printed on their backs, but the only one whose name anyone would bother writing down was the girl making with the music. Honey-colored hair with a gardenia over the left ear. White shoulders pushing out of the whiter gown. A face full of confidence in the rest of it. And no wonder. After I finished my drink, I walked back toward her. Say, excuse me, but would your name be Helen? Well, that's a novel approach, isn't it? Should I go back and try it over with Irene or Penelope? <laughs> What's the difference? It ends the same way. Can I play something for you? This one suits me. If I could talk to you through it. Can't for the life of me see what we'd have to talk about. Maybe some other time we can get around to that. But I ran into an old mate of mine yesterday. He mentioned this place, and you know I'd like to locate him. His name is Dave Malone. Do you know him? Malone? Sure he said he knew me? Yeah, I thought so, but maybe he was just hoping, huh? Yeah. I'm afraid that must have been it, because I don't know any Dave Malone. Yeah, well, it was one of those things. He mentioned your name, so I thought I'd give it a try, but I'll coast around. Maybe I'll come back on my own sometime. I hope you do. I'll be here. Wear that dress, will you?
I had another drink at the bar and kept my eyes off her just enough to catch her looking at me with more than a professional look once or twice. She did go off guard right after I threw Malone's name at her. I was sure of it. I finished my drink and went out the door like I had someplace to go. But I stopped right after I got out of range of the windows, counted five, and eased back so I could just look in. She was leaving the platform. And I, along with the good, healthy fisherman, watched her sway that white gown back to the phone booth. It wasn't taking her long to contact somebody about me contacting her. It was just chance so far, but there were Malone, Helen, and 218, the number of the murder room at the Crown Hotel. It could have been coincidence, but there isn't much room on the back of a match folder. Hotel was a narrow brownstone front building squeezed between two more narrow brownstone front buildings. I looked in at the musty lobby. It was empty. I tried the door once to see if it was going to ring a bell someplace. When nobody showed up, I went in. There was a dingy brown hunting scene hung on one wall and a dingy brown smell of bad ventilation hanging over everything. There was an immodest calendar from a Reno gambling club wasting its time behind the desk. And a register book that had seen more lies than Munchaus. And I flipped the pages back to the day before. Found room 218. It was registered to one John Smith. Then, just on impulse, I flipped back to the current date and found myself on top of the whole mess. Sprawled in an awkward hand against room 218 was the single name Gallagher. Room 218 and the name Gallagher. All I needed to keep me going up those stairs. All I had to remember to enjoy bringing that 45 out of my shoulder holster was the picture of that wide grin and those gray eyes. I'd have gone through that door even if it hadn't have been unlocked. Well, Skipper, come on in. I'm in, brother. What's all the hardware for, Skipper? Why are you always aching for a beef when you and I run into one another? Let's throw that warm friendship, shall we? Let's you do a little talking that you mean for a while. I never say anything I don't mean, Skipper. You'll learn that when you know me better. That's what I'm here for, Gallagher, so start saying something you mean. Sure. Why do you think I took this room if I wasn't sure you'd be bullying around this neighborhood tonight? What interests me most is that you did. I knew you'd like it, Skipper. I know you've got to have Malone's murderer before you can clear San Francisco, and I can give him to you. They call him Mr. Fox. He's working for Constantino. If you didn't know that before, you know it now. Who's Constantine? You're being cagey, Skipper, and that's all right. You don't know what to say because you don't know how much I know. I don't know how much you know, so we're even, right? You're talking. The fox didn't learn what he wanted to learn from Malone. He tried too hard. So he paid me two grand to sign on with you. I was supposed to find out what part of the Southern Oceans you were making for, and the payoff was going to be a grand a month. But just keeping the finger on you and waiting to be contacted. It was an easy deal. Somebody in your family must have been born with shark fins not too far back. There was supposed to be a great uncle under the Jolly Roger skipper, but <laughs> no fins yet. But I got reason. I'm telling you this because if they'd pay off like that for just a line on you, I figure the real dough is going to be made on your side. You've got a hold of something big. I still want to ship with you, but for you. Well, I'm a dirty... I'm telling you, Gallagher, for the price of the queen, I can't tell you who's crazy in this room. Nobody is, Skipper. You're going to be ahead, too. Believe me, you are. I can help you clear up the mess here in Frisco. I'll put you next to the fox and his mermaid. Oh? Her name Helen? How'd you get that? 
She isn't hard to find. Well, uh, that's right, Helen Curran. She led Malone to this room with a smile and a promise. Yeah. Neither one would look good from her. I know I was there. She's seen you? Did you tell her who you were? Are you nuts? Then it'll work. Listen. But tonight, you're the chief mate of the Scarlet Queen. You beat me out of the berth. If you'll go for that story, I'll get you Malone's killer. Or put me on a morgue slab for another two grand. I trust you like I trust the compass at the North Pole. <laughs> It'll take you a month to get him without me, Skipper. With you under homicide's third degree? <laughs> Even then. Now, here's my deal, and we both make headway. I get the mate's berth, and you get your port clearance. But we gotta have a bait. That's you. And we gotta have somebody who can put it in the right place. That's me. You got the 45. Take a gamble, Skipper. I'll show you how it works. It was about a quarter of 11 when I pulled my left ear for luck the last time, followed them down to the lobby, took my last look at that Reno calendar. Gallagher looked like he was enjoying putting me on the block, and the only reason I could dream up for playing sucker was the idea that as long as I kept the line on him, I was at least secure to something. He squeezed me into the phone booth with him when he put the bait on the hook. He held the receiver so I could get my ear into it, too, and called Helen Curran at the Gorgonio. Hello, baby. This is Red. Oh, it's about time. I thought you were coming in. And something came up. Did you get the gardenia? Sure. Sure, I'm wearing it right now. When can I show you how much I like it? Don't talk like that when I'm so far away. Listen, things got foul tonight, but I think they'll work out anyway. What happened, Red? I missed that mate's birth by about 15 minutes. A guy by the name of Pritchard beat me to it. Oh, Red, the fox isn't going to like this. I think he will. Did a guy come in there tonight looking for Dave Malone? Yeah. Why, Red? That was Pritchard. And he's got the information we want. That sounds funny, Red. How'd you get all this? He stuck his head in a bar where I was, and I recognized him. He knows where they're headed. I could have maybe pumped him for it, but uh, I thought it'd be better if you and the fox were in on it, too. Yeah. Where is he? On his way back to the Gorgonio to see you. He's big. So i better tag along for the party, don't you think? Maybe in your apartment later, if you can get him there. <laughs> and I think you can. All right, Red. Give me a half hour to get through to the fox and call me back. I'll let you know where he'll pick you up, okay? Yeah, but, uh, baby, take it easy till I get there. I don't want that gardenia crushed on anybody's shoulder but mine. Helen Curran knew her business. She didn't go overboard selling herself, but like nature taking its course, she and the white gown and I got into a cab after closing time. Her apartment was in the Buell Arms on Russian Hill. It was a little overdone in modernizing a setup that was dull mid-Victorian a few years back. Light walls with Venetian blinds, some flamingos and parakeets flying through verdant jungles. He framed before they started. And the bedroom to the right that she went into saying something about something comfy. When she came back, I saw clearly that she went for off-the-shoulder hostess gowns, too. There now. I feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. What's the matter with me, anyway? Is there something? I always seem to stir the wrong approach in you. Or are you just shy? With you, you don't need an approach. You just move naturally. <laughs> you aren't shy at all, are you? You're just overconfident. You've been spoiled by women. It's never hurt me. 
then it's not very often as appealing as your brand. Do you think I'll spoil you? Uh-uh. But I wonder if you'd hurt me. Not even if I could, and I'd... Hey, wait a minute. Oh, I couldn't hurt you if I wanted to, could I? I don't know, but from where I sit, who cares? Like I said, she knew her business. And I had to keep remembering that it wasn't all crushed gardenias tonight. We finally did get around to a drink out of a rattan-covered bottle, and I could tell by the heavy-lidded look she gave me over a glass that I was supposed to be a complete victim and as meek as a kitten with a full belly. She knew her business. But knowing that she knew her business, I went along with the kitten act. But I was as ready as a tiger when Gallagher opened the door. But I wasn't ready for the man he brought with him. It was Funston. L.B. Funston, still looking through the rimless glasses, but now his eyes were steely hard, and it only took one deep breath to realize that he was the fox. He had a small caliber gun out of an inside pocket faster than I could get my breath. Wait a minute, Gallagher. This man's name is not Richard Fox. What do you mean? I know it. Something went wrong. This guy stole Connie, the master of the Scarlet Queen. I was sitting on the couch, and after a sellout like that, there was no use standing up. Helen left me like I'd broken out with the purple pox, and Gallagher still stood behind Funston looking at me with that grin. Fred, Fred, he's the one who was in to see me earlier. Never mind, Helen. He isn't the guy I talked to. Never mind, I said. You are an impulsive man, Carney. I'm a little surprised at you too, Funston. What are you doing here? I like a game of bridge as well as the next guy. You play a stupid game. You should remember that your Red Queen is not the top of the suit. She'll do. She'll never win a trick. You'll never use her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But you're bluffing, Funston. Ah. Uh-huh. Either that or you're double-crossing Constantino and talking for yourself. Fighting to stay clear of Malone's murder. I want more than talk. You're still bluffing. You don't want to hurt me because with me out of the way, Constantino's octopus would have nothing to follow. Wise up. You don't scare me. I'm too valuable. All right. I'll pay you $25,000 for the destination of your Scarlet Queen. I can't hear you. There are other methods, Carney. Now you're bluffing again. You'd never get it that way either. And what did Constantino say if you laid me next to Malone? That's something I'll have to find out. At the moment, that looks better than arrest for murder. Stand up, Carney. You're really on a spot, Funston. You're even getting the double cross from your own people in this room. Now, who's bluffing, Carney? I mean, you're getting it from Gallagher. He knew who I was tonight. Gallagher! Skipper, why do you have to rush? Hey! I'm all right, Skipper. I'll take him. Watch the money! I raced her across the room to a table. She had a drawer open and a nickel-plated revolver half out of it by the time I grabbed her. Drop it! Drop it! I said drop it! Calm down, sister. Get over there and calm down! Grabbed her by the arm and tossed her across the room and had that 45 out before she landed. I twisted a look at Funston. Gallagher had hit him hard enough to keep him from opening until Christmas. He was tangled up with a throw rug and not thinking about a thing. Oh, well, Skipper. There's your port clearance and my chief mate's birth spread all over the room. Yeah. Now, what the devil was the idea of you leaving me to shake hands with that gun of Funston for so long? I had to do it, Skipper, to keep him off guard. He knew our story was fishy before I got him up here. He knew? Yeah. He knew you hadn't signed on the chief mate. He had good spies. Where'd he find that out? He got it by being the honest banker. Eager to play along with the police. He kept in touch with your friend at Homicide, Kessel. Yeah. I knew that Kessel was a good man. (laughs) But we're a great team, Skipper. We're standing up and they're laying down. 
But Constantino isn't with them. We'll hear from him again. Keep an eye on him, will you? I got a proud call to make to Homicide. By two the next afternoon, we cast off from Pier 48 and were headed out. We went through the Golden Gate under power, sitting on the wheel box with a bottle between us. We followed the channel buoys out to the barrel on, picking up that good deep water roll. And the driving westerly started to sing through the rigging. I felt like a man getting his back out of a cast and walking again. The crew perked up, too, and they fell through with a will when Gallagher started falling over. had a pulse in the bottle and shook hands with them. They took their stations at the main plant. The Hadiers hoisted away smartly and the head of the main plant climbed up the mast. And the white expanse of it bellied out and pulled the deck beneath me hove over to port. And I could feel the power of the wheel. The gypsum boomed out. Then the mizzen. Scarlet Queen was glad to be free, too. She took the bone in her teeth and charged every swell as though she were carrying on a one-woman war with the whole Pacific. Here's the rig. Heavy enough for you, Skipper. We're showing eight knots on the taffrail off. Good enough. We'll hold her full and by till nightfall and then let her off some. Oh, you got a fine lady here, Skipper. Behaving like a queen. <laughs> She'll get us to Kaiwi Channel in less than 14 days. That means the Royal Hawaiian Bar in less than 14 nights. What's the run from there? That'll depend on the wind and other circumstances. Japan, the coast of China, then south across the line to the shallow sea. How long are we going to be down there? We may never get there, so who cares how long it'll be? Not me. I'm not married. You are now, mate. With a scarlet queen, the bigamist. Oh, better let me take the wheel, then. We've got to have a honeymoon sometime. Sure, take over. Course is 237 on the gyro compass. Got her? Yeah. Hey, she's got spirit. What a wife she's going to make. What a honeymoon. Want a drink, Skipper? After you, mate. Your wedding day. And you'll make a handsome couple. Believe me, you do. Log entry. Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled 31. Wind brisk. Sky fair. Sea cresting with high cross swell. Mainsail and mizzen reefed. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney, Master. The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Two nine zero. 
win fresh sky fair. Remarks cleared Port of Honolulu at 3.30 a.m. without lights to avoid harbor and police officials. Reason for secrecy? The report from the White Jade Buddha. On the 13th day out of San Francisco, with the constant trade still flowing in over the starboard quarter, the Scarlet Queen stood in through Kaiwi Channel, past Coco and Diamond Head, and eased into Honolulu Harbor. I planned on finding dockage off 4th Street near the shopping district where I could take on water and food stores in a hurry, pick up my payroll and instructions from Kang's Honolulu contact, and head out. But the section was jammed with merchantmen, so we nosed past Sand Island under power and into Kapalama Basin, where we tied up under the stern of an aging but busy victory ship. We'd noticed the big diesel yacht that had entered the basin in our wake, but we didn't pay any attention to it until it anchored just off our port beam and a dinghy luster pulled up alongside. My chief mate, Red Gallagher, caught the hail. Ahoy! The Scarlet Queen! Ahoy, the boat! What's your business? Last one, Bradbury. Master of the Rock of Hunger. So I have your permission aboard? Not mine. How about yours, Keeper? You stay where you are. Huh? What's that? Oh, that was quarantine. I didn't say so, but it'll do. Well, then, if Mohammed cannot come to the mountains, sir, let the mountains come to Mohammed. Talk English or cast off. What do you want? The pleasure of your company is here aboard the Rock of Hunger. Yourself and your first officer, sir. No need for a formal acceptance. I never take no for an answer. I shall expect you promptly at five. What kind of bilge was that? I say, let's take him up on that invitation, Skipper. I say that tea smells like poison. Well, you expect the trouble in Honolulu, so it's better to have poison hail you from a dinghy than run into a knife in the dark shoreside alley. What do you say? A poison on a yacht where you can see it or a knife in a dark alley? Okay, Red. Break out your white linen jacket. We'll try the poison. <laughs> Mutual continues the voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tolman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, broadest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further in the strange voyage of the Scarlet Queen. instinct was to turn down Bradbury's invitation, because I knew that Constantino's machine was out to stop the voyage of the Scarlet Queen. He used every trick in the business to keep me from the $10 million prize Kang was sending me after. They killed once in San Francisco when Gallagher was on their payroll, and now after Red had switched his loyalties to my side, the Bradbury hail might be another move. But a few minutes before five, Gallagher and I dropped into our small boat and stole the 50 yards to the good ship Rockahonga. A Kanaka crewman took our painter and made us fast to the ladder. We hunched our shoulder holsters in the easy positions and went aboard. We walked across immaculate teak wood toward the main house. Just before we reached it, something under a deck cleat caught my eye. I picked it up. It was a small opal earring in a gold setting. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. Come in out of the sun. He's getting cold. Yes, we'll make formalities brief. I'd like to introduce my nephew. 
Uh, your name, please? I'm Carney. This is my first officer, Mr. Gallagher. Uh, splendid, splendid. Yeah, I'm pleased to meet you. Why don't you park your hardware outside? This is a tea party. No, no, sir. Certainly the gentlemen have come out. All manner of danger in these latitudes. Sharks, foreigners, natives. All right, clam, blubber, clam. Tell them what you want and send them back to the rowboat. You're boring the gentlemen. Yes, yes, of course. It uh, just so happens that I do have a proposition to place before you. In spite of the apparent grandeur with which you find me surrounded, gentlemen, I... I find myself temporarily embarrassed well, financially. That's he means he's broke. That's tough. I remember myself. Yeah. Well, naturally, you're thinking that I can sell this yacht for more than enough to carry me, but uh, I can't in Honolulu for reasons which I won't go into. As a matter of fact, I am taking great risks and even anchoring here, but I had no choice. What are you handing me? You picked us up off Sand Island and followed us into the basin. Why us? Why, the very impression you make... Your ship's uh, well-loaded, a craft that will handle well under jib and mizzen for intricate island sailing. Yeah, along with 50 other catches in this harbor. Yes. Uh, now, Mr. Carney, the point is this. I am, shall we say, persona non grata in this city. He means he's hot in Honolulu. Last time he was here, he got a skin full and asked his dame on the ship. Sir, she... that will be enough, sir. To continue, I must raise enough money to fuel my voyage back to the States. Neither I, nor if I may say so, Cyril can go ashore. Yeah, but it was no dame. Uh, in my travels, I have collected a number of valuable objets d'art. Among them, this rare white jade representation of the Arakanese Buddha, one of the most sacred objects of the Orient. Stolen from the Boangan Temple. Look, he... look, what Blubber's trying to tell you, he's hot. The statue's hot. But there's a certain character in Honolulu who'll pay off good for it. He wants you gents to deliver it for a third of the proceeds. He trusts you. Don't ask me why. Uh, nicely put, so. Hello, gentlemen. How about it? Do you agree to assist me? Who's your buyer? A gentleman of the Oriental persuasion, Lu Chi Shen by name. You will present the object to him, and if he does not instantly recognize its worth, as I believe he will, then kindly direct his attention to the cylindrical marking at its base. This identifies it beyond a shadow of a doubt as the Arakanese Buddha Boanga. Well, Mr. Carney. Oh, the tea is all right, Skipper. The guy's in trouble. we got to go ashore anyway. Okay, Red, pick up the doll. Oh, almost forgot. I found this out on deck. Engineering. Huh. Hello, Paul. Huh. Where could that have come from? Yeah. Where? Oh, a cheap little thing. Take it along, Mr. Carney, for luck. dusk when we left the Scarlet Queen to go ashore. By the time we'd reached King Street in the center of town, the tropic night had settled in around the city. Kang and Company's office was closed, so I phoned the home of the manager, Neil Gregson. He told us to meet him there in an hour. We decided to unload Bradbury's hunk of jay and kill the rest of the time in the nearest bar. We found the shop on Canton Street, a few blocks east of King. The sign on the window was in Chinese, but down in the corner in English was the name Luji Shen. It was a typical cluttered Chinese curio shop, dim, smelling sandalwood. A thin, wrinkled little man looking out of character in occidental clothes and green eye shade was waiting for us behind the counter. Yes? You wish to buy a Chinese ware? Uh, you Lu Shen? Yes. Who tell you come here? Uh, Bradbury. Bradbury? Maybe mistake you come here. We got something for you. Now, what do you think of that for white jade? You try to sell that to me? That's not jade. What do you mean it isn't 
jade. That's Japanese work. Very cheap. No good for me. Wait a minute. This is a great thing. Where do you say it came from, Skipper? A uh, temple somewhere. Boanga. Boanga? No. Cannot be Boanga Buddha. Oh, he says, look on the bottom, Lou. He says, mark there, proves. Oh. Wait. I turn on light. Uh-huh. Mm. It's very strange mark. Very small. He turned the base of the Buddha toward the light and squinted nearsightedly at a spot of shining metal that was set in the center. He put a jeweler's glass into his left eye and looked again. Then he picked up a penknife and started scraping the tarnish off the metal disc. He didn't finish the job. Didn't make any more noise than a firecracker. There was a little tinkle of broken glass. His body went rigid for a split second and then relaxed. piece hadn't even shattered. There was a clean hole through it about the size of a 25 caliber slug. The bullet that had killed Luigi Shen had entered his left eye from close range. And the shattered pieces of Bradbury's phony Buddha had found a weapon. It was a simple gadget, a rifle cartridge with a spring mechanism and a firing cap. I'd seen plenty of them on Pacific beachheads during the war. We called them finger mines. It looked like Constantino's work, but I couldn't figure why. Any way you looked at it, it was murder, and we were in too deep to stand still. Twenty minutes later, a cab dropped us in front of Neil Gregson's Spanish-style mansion out on the other side of Diamond Head. The air was heavy with the smell of jasmine as we went up the walk to the front entrance. But the perfume that hit us when the door opened was more expensive. Well, Neil told me a couple of men were coming, but he didn't say it like he should have. Thanks. Where do we find him? He had to go out for a while, but he said I could entertain you until he got back. It won't be long. I'm sorry to hear that. Come in, won't you? Follow me. She was easy to follow. She swayed down a few steps and into a sunken living room. From the door, I could see that we weren't the only men she was entertaining. I counted five lounging around the room. Four of them, including a young Oriental with a scarred face, wore a well-filled shoulder holster. The other sat with a carbine across his knees. He was the only one I recognized. It was Bradbury's nephew, Cyril. Uh, come in, suckers. This could be a friendly get-together. Sure, what else? Maybe a little seven-card stud, just to break the ice. I'll take you up on that, Cyril. We always get a square deal from you. Oh, I like you, too, Gallagher. How much money you got? Yeah. How would you like to spend your time, Mr. Carney? Kicking myself from here to the equator, thanks. Come on over to the bar. My name's Claire, and I'll make you a drink. We'll put the kick in that. That's probably the truth. Yes, there's the station. Relax. Do something manly, like making a pass at me. With all your husbands in the room? Well, that's better anyway, but I'm not married. Just well supplied with chaperones. Huh? Do you think I need them? Oh, get off it, will you? You don't need them with me. What is the setup, anyway? Mm, a bunch of fellas just happen to drop in. Did you come with them, or are you part of the furniture? I'm engaged to Neil Gregson. You won't like him either. Mm-hmm. It makes as much sense as anything else. As a matter of fact, is your drink all right? Yeah. Can't remember when I've enjoyed one more. I could say the same about you if I were the sarcastic type, but I'm... That must be Neil. Excuse me. The doorbell did something to the atmosphere in the room. I wasn't quite sure what. Nobody changed their position. Cyril glanced up and then glanced back at his whole card. Claire walked through the room and up the steps. She looked through the open grill, turned back to the room, and held up one finger. Then she opened the door. The 
figure of a man stood silhouetted in the doorway for just an instant, and then... Every gun in the room opened up on him. The shock knocked him half off the porch, and he lay there. Some people never learn, do they? You really take chances, don't you? You got real guts, sir. Oh, Skipper, it's their fault. He never got his hands out of his pockets. I'll ask your advice next time, Connie, but for now, come up and stay alive, huh? You, Gallagher, on your feet. You're going with us. Good idea. We can finish that game of stuff. Wait a minute. What's the deal? It's a payoff, Connie, for Gallagher's double cross in Frisco. You know what I mean? Okay, let's clear out. I felt like a man on a yard square island. From where I stood, there was no place to turn. Cyril's talk about red double cross added up to Constantino. I was sure of that. And it wasn't hard to figure how they'd pay off Gallagher for signing on with me. So far, Honolulu wasn't living up to the travel folders. It was all blind alleys. And in each one, there was a dead man. I went to the door, dragged the body inside, and locked myself in with him. I pulled out his wallet. It was Gregson, all right, but any information he was to give me was as dead as he was. That still held even after I found an envelope in his inside coat pocket that had my name on it. Two hours ago, it would have led to Kang's instructions. Now it didn't lead any place. It said, Muji Shen is Kang's man. You're to meet him at 11.45 tonight. I walked a few blocks over to Koa Avenue and hailed a cab. It dropped me on Canton Street. It was about 10, and I hoped that the police were through with Lou's curio shop. The dim light was on and no one was in sight. I went in. It was not only open, it was open for business. There wasn't a sign that a murder had been committed there. And another aged Chinese face rose up out of the shadows behind the counter. Your wish by Chinese where? Who are you? I am Jia Cheng. You do business now, tonight? You wish by? I help you. No, I mean Luji Shen. Lord Jishan, not here. I know it. That's what I mean. You do business after what happened tonight? Lord Jishan, not here. Were the police here? Many police. Many men all want Lord Jishan. He not here. He go two, three days. I got an idea you're talking my language, Chow. Did you see him get killed? Lord Jishan, not here. But, Chow... You know Kang and Son, Shanghai? No, Sabe. You know name Scarlet Queen? No, Sabe. Other man, ask them. What other man? Fat man in white suit, maybe come with police? Look, Joe, I'm captain on Scarlet Queen. I work for Kang and Son. No, Sabe. Fat man, say, say. He was lying. Look, look here. This paper, it says... Philip Carney, Master, Catch, Scarlet Queen. You read English? No, read. And look here, this letter from Kang and Son in Chinese. I was supposed to give it to Lu Shen, but I didn't know it until it was too late. You come along me. He padded down the other side of the counter and I followed him. We went through a door at the back of the shop and into the living quarters. Jow bent over a carved camperwood chest. When he straightened up, he had a bamboo tube and a thick envelope in his hand. Both of them were from Kang. They 
envelope held a beautiful, thick bundle of $500 bills and a piece of rice paper in the tube carried my instructions for finding the contact in Kobe, Japan, and a list of numbers that could have been found in the elevation. They were to be memorized, the paper destroyed. You're sorry. I savvy. Kang, he most white man. You aren't so bad yourself, Joe. You work good trick on Bradbury. Yes, good trick, all right. The police don't know Lou was killed? No person, no. I clean up very fast. No person see him, only you. Along with the one with red hair and me. To all other person. Yojisha, go away. Believe me, I hope he has a good trip. Chow, you help me more? Yeah. Bradbury took the one with red hair away. Unless I find, maybe he goes same place Lujisha. Mm. You know where in Honolulu those men go? Honolulu, very big. Look, one of them was Chinese boy. Nice car, cross here. Mm. You know all Chinese boys? I know the one. You know what place he go, any house saloon, what place he meet friend? No friend. American, very bad for that Chinese boy. I know it, Joe. I'll try and take care of it for you. Maybe beat Americans' heads together, huh? That place named Palmhouse. Street name, Canal Street. Very bad. Yeah, very good. Joe, you're a beautiful guy. You're the first thing I've seen in Honolulu that I'd like to take home with me. The Palm House on Canal Street was the kind of a place the police find at the end of a vice drive. It was a two-story building that covered its windows with bamboo screens to hide its activities from those lucky enough to be outside and a lousy view from those stupid enough to be inside. The only healthy thing about the place was the two fat palm trees that gave it its name. I took a final breath of fresh night air and went in. Like this, go ahead. Be stupid. That ain't hurting me. 
Well, that's because you've got guts, Earl Grey. Just as I hit him, somebody threw two shots, and like at a signal, the place went pitch dark. I dropped flat on the floor and stayed there. Automatic flashed out of the blackness, the splinters from the bar rained down on me. Then the place went silent. I lay there quietly waiting. Afraid to give them my position by firing back. I heard the scrape of someone sliding my way and snapped the safety catch on the automatic. Then I smelled the perfume. Claire put both hands on my face to show me she didn't have a gun and breathed something about getting out into my ear. I grabbed one of her hands with my left, reached up to the bar and found a glass. I took a breath and threw it to the other end of the room. Then we got up and ran. I didn't try to figure the twist. All I saw was a chance to get out of there, and I took it. She led me through a back door into a car parked in an alley. And the last I saw of the palm house was its reflection in the rear view mirror. end of the island and led me into a cottage on the beach. The lights were shaded, the drinks were handy, and the motif was pagan. I'd expected her to toss me some curves, but I was a little wrong at the type. The event so far hadn't pointed to the kind that go with whispering surf and moonlight through palm groves. There they were. You got the shakes, haven't you? The shakes are different on this end of the island. Your eyes aren't as soft as you talk. How would they look if they were? Wish I knew what you were up to. Couldn't I just like it? Uh-uh. Couldn't I try? Couldn't I be sick of the whole mess and everyone in it? Couldn't I be honest with myself for just a little while? I don't know. Could you? Maybe I was wrong about you being alive. You know me? Uh-uh. So scared. Scared to death. I am too, sir. Maybe, maybe it. Oh, darling. Your face, he hurt you, didn't he? He hurt you. I don't remember. I don't remember a thing of being here. I never did figure out whether she was really being honest or not. But I didn't know her well enough to care a great deal. The drink she mixed that pineapple juice in them and the atmosphere she created was quite peaceful. She made only one mistake. She looked at her wristwatch too often. If she hadn't, it might have been different because I didn't hear a car pull up or footsteps outside or anything. I just saw a change in her. And I put my glass down and got ready. I wasn't quite sure who'd come through the door. It turned out to be Bradbury, but he was more surprised than I was. Claire was pointing a small automatic at him. Claire. What's the meaning of this? I've changed my mind. Uh, you're in too deep to misuse my faith in you. You put your pretty finger on your fiancé Gregson for an equally pretty remuneration. Quit being fancy and stay where you are. I found somebody who pays more for faith than you do. I don't understand you, Claire. Who wouldn't? Since our friend Gallagher has seen to it that Cyril is no longer with us, we might bargain. There must be a meeting point. Certainly you aren't wasting your time on Connie here. Shut around, fat boy. Who drove you out here? Gallagher. Yeah, that boy, Gallagher. Isn't it a caution, Skipper, what we have to go through to keep our heads above water? That's when the pagan cottage exploded, because that's when everybody realized who was sold out by whom. Red-colored Bradbury and I made a grab at Claire. I was close, but not close enough. She 
He aims at Gallagher, but Bradbury's been pulled in line instead. Two spots of crimson suddenly blossomed on that white linen suit. And when Red let go of him, he settled flatly on the carpet. And Claire disappeared through a side door. <laughs> Where's the dame, Skipper? I want to get my hands on her. Let her go, Red. I can't help it, Skipper. She made me mad. You know why? Sure. I don't think you do. Remember that opal earring you found in the Rakahanga? I wasn't mad till I found the other one on her dressing table. What were you doing at her dressing table? Making a deal, Skipper. Deciding that she double-crossed Cyril and Bradbury, I'd double-cross you. And she and I were going to live happily ever after. On what Constantino would pay us for what you got from Lou G. Shen. Yeah. Should I congratulate you? Skipper, if you knew what I went through making Cyril think I was double-crossing you, you would congratulate me. Yeah. How about Cyril? Yeah. How about Cyril? Skipper, what do you think of Honolulu as a port of call? It's kind of mixed up with what I think of you as a chief mate. But I think if we try, we can get out of here before daybreak. Considering what's happened since we got here, I think we better. Homicide won't like us in the morning. An hour later, a sleepy crew had fallen to, and the Scarlet Queen sneaked away from her dock under power, out of Kapalama Basin, headed out toward the still dark western horizon. At dawn, we picked up the trade winds and cut the motor. Position, 132 degrees, 6 minutes west, 25 degrees, 15 minutes north. Gyro compass course, 275. Winds fresh, sky fair. Remarks, 
departed island of Muninjima at 4.15 p.m. After unlodged movement of vessel. Reason for move, the Spaniard and the Lascar Pirates. mid-afternoon, 15 days after we dropped the Hawaiian chain behind us that we raised on the horizon the mountain peaks of Muninjima, and our appetite for cool, sweet water and fresh fruit. The island lies some 500 miles east-northeast from the Bonin Group, and it served as a Japanese base during the war. My pre-war charts, due to Jap secrecy, were incomplete and inaccurate, but just before sunset, when we stood around the southern tip, we did find the anchorage shown on them. It was a small half-moon bay, protected by a line of breakers foaming in over a barrier reef. A little north of the center of the reef was our pad, wide enough for the queen to slip through with good steerage way, friendly current, and the light hand at the wheel. The water over the side took on a shallow look as we approached under power, and Gallagher went to the bow with a hand lead to measure the depth. He heaved the lead in line forward, and his readings came rolling back. Hey, come on! Hey! Five fathoms, leaving a few to spare between keel and bottom. but shallowing to less than five as we closed on the pad. Five the teeth! Four! Four and a half fathoms, and the teeth of the coral started to show through the white froth of surf. And the currents washing back from it took the bow of the queen from port and pushed. Five the mark! Four! Easy, zipper, easy! I fought the wheel, and for a moment the scarlet figurehead seemed to rest on the reef. And then her head swung into the narrow channel. The shoulders of the reef swirled by us on each side. No bottom at 15. No bottom at 15. We were in. To deep, quiet water. After our anchors were secured to the sandy bottom, Gallagher and I dropped into our dinghy and rowed toward a small pier that jutted out from the beach. At water level, we were able to see a cluster of half a dozen tin-roofed frame buildings set back from the shore and shaded by a grove of banyans and cocoa palms. We shipped our oars, started to make fast when we heard footsteps on the pier above us. I looked up, straight into the muzzle of a 30 caliber rifle. A single watery china blue eye looked at me from behind the sights. Go back to your ship! Wait a minute! My ears stuffed up, or did you say go back to our ship? Get your ship out of the bay! You are welcome here! We need stores. This is no social call. We need water and fresh fruit, or we wouldn't have stopped. He's drunk, Skipper. Here, let me take that pop gun away from him. Wait a minute, Red. I think he means it. I think he's... Red! Red, are you hit? No. But you're right, Skipper. He does mean it. The guy's stark raving nuts. Mutual continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tolman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, broadest ship to sail the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further in the strange Voyage of the Scarlet Queen.
I stood there in the dory, looking up at the rifle and the man behind it. He was a dissipated 35, dressed in rumpled white duck trousers, no shirt, and a linen jacket streaked down the front with liquor and food stains. I was trying to figure how drunk he was and whether to make a try for the rifle myself when a movement shoreside caught my eye. And what a movement. She walked across that strip of beach as if she owned it. Emmett! Emmett, what are you doing out here? I don't want them ashore. Give me that rifle. Give it here. Uh, too many of them here already. Give me that gun. I'll shoot them and then the others. You drunken fool! Go on. Go on or I'll use it on you. All right. We haven't got trouble enough. We'll have it now. I'm sorry, gentlemen. My husband has been ill. Please come ashore. You're more than welcome. <laughs> well, Skipper, what are we waiting for? That's a foolish question, Brett. I'm Nora Fairfield. Welcome to Mooneen Zima. I'm sorry your first greeting was so unpleasant. Yeah. What does your husband hunt with that cannon? Men. He hates them. But uh, you don't, hmm? Certainly not. That's why he does. You said he was sick. What's wrong with him? Nothing you have to worry about. But I think I should warn you. You aren't the only visitors on Mooneen Zima. For an island that gets a steamer twice a year, we're doing well. I didn't see any boat in the bay. He wasn't as good a sailor as you are. He lost his ship on the reef a month ago. He should have stayed home. I'm beginning to think so myself. I let Red fight his own way out of that one. Something up ahead of us interested me more at the moment. She'd taken us into the compound, and we were maybe 50 yards from the resident's house. It was a typical island bungalow built up on stilts with a deep veranda across the front of it, but it wasn't the house that interested me. It was a group of bare-chested, brown-skinned East Indians squatting on their heels at the foot of the stairs. They looked as though their short leave had lasted too long. And the curved knives they wore looked even meaner than their faces. Their eyes followed us as we went past them and into the house. Two men were sprawled in wicker chairs, and neither of them was her husband. The dark one, built along the lines of Rocky Graziano, grinned up at us. Call me, number The girl save you from the husband, too, no? Captain Ramirez. Captain, uh... Carney. Phil Carney. And Mr. Gallagher, my first officer. That's good enough. I'm Dr. Mitchell. Thomas Mitchell. And you needn't tell me I looked the path. I've been told before. Captain Ramirez is the man I told you about, Captain Carney. You men talk. I'll go see if my husband has enough bottles to keep him comfortable. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, that was tough, losing his ship, Ramirez. Eh? A uh, mal suerte. Sometimes bad, sometimes good. This time bad. But who knows? Maybe things get better today. Better. Better, he says. With that heathen crew of yours squatting on their heels outside, ready to sink those murderous knives into our backs if we so much as look cross-eyed at them? Don't talk so much. Or I'll let you die on this island. So, that's your plan. You think you'll buy your way out of here in the Scarlet Queen and leave me here to rot? As one Irishman to another, Mr. Carney, this pirate has not got the price of a passage. He will have to excuse this doctor. <laughs> Too much, son. But if you take me, Carney, I have money in the States. Stay, like the money you stole in Manaquari. He will be in jail before he pays. <laughs> Listen to the man. That boat under the reef. Where do you think Captain Ramirez came by such a vessel? He stole it. And if you don't look sharp, that is enough. Now I help you out, doctor. You're a little rough on your passengers, aren't you, Ramirez? 
Uh, him? He lived too long in the tropics. His brain is fried. Maybe I should have butted in and saved him a sore jaw. The Scarlet Queen isn't taking on any passengers here. No room. Hey, how big is your crew, Connie? Eight seamen. <laughs> That's funny. That's my crew, eight men. But our crew's carrying guns, Ramirez, in case you got any idea. I didn't see anything but knives on those Laskers of yours. I don't worry. I've got gun down in my bungalow. But to see here, I prefer the knife myself. <laughs> Eight-inch knife blade vibrated in the table in front of us. He was so fast, I didn't even see where it came from, but there it was. He flashed us a smile full of oversized, over-polished teeth, then tugged the knife out of the wood and left. This is a great island, Skipper. I'm glad you brought me here. I just wish there was enough daylight and tide left to get us through that reef and out of here. You think he's crazy enough to try and take the queen? I don't know, Red, but I'm not sleeping tonight, and neither are you. We'll keep our eye on him from two places. I'll row you back to the ship, and I'm staying ashore. Wait a minute, Skipper. You're pulling your rank on me. I met her, too. Forget it, Red. There's a husband and Ramirez in the picture, too. By the time I'd taken Gallagher to the Queen, broken out enough rifles to arm the crew, and rowed back to the island, night had fallen. And the first quarter moon was rising above the tops of the ponds. when I hit the beach to get my bearings, decide which way to go. The threat was real enough, I was sure of that. Island shipwreck has turned sweeter characters than Ramirez to piracy. And the only way he or any of us could get out of there was on the decks of the Scarlet Queen. He was facing a crew of natives filled with frenzy for a home thousands of miles away. I was two legs out on a voyage with a $10 million prize at its destination somewhere in the South Pacific. I'd fought before and I was ready to fight again to keep the Scarlet Queen underway. found a shadow, black in the faint moonlight, made my automatic handy at my waist, and started counting the minutes to the rise of sun and tide and the chance to get away from this place. The first 20 went by slowly and quietly. Then I heard a rustle in the brush behind me. I took a quick step sideways, snapped my automatic from my belt, and whirled the faces out. Oh! Oh, Captain Carney, you... Oh, why waste time on an act? You didn't surprise me. Came looking for you. You just startled me a little. That puts us on common ground, except for the surprise. Why were you looking for me? Because I've got to get away from Emmett. I want to go with you. Talk sense. I can't take you with me. You could, Phil. I don't know what's going to happen if I stay here with that decaying pig. I'm afraid I'll kill him. And I'm afraid he'll kill me. I've got to get away from here. So look at me. Please, Phil, take me away from here. You don't touch me, gorgeous. I can hear you saying the same thing the same way to Emmett about getting away from some other sucker. <laughs> the only way you're going to get away from this island is on a tramp steamer. Oh. oh, Phil, I didn't mean that. Really, I didn't. I'm just going crazy, that's all. Phil, if you know what kind of a woman I am, can't we let it go at that? Then I couldn't hurt you. So, so, just for a minute... Don't be afraid of me. 
and maybe half a hope that she wasn't through pleading her case and she'd be back. I sat there through the next hour trying to keep my mind on the Queen's cabin lights bobbing slightly out in the bay and to be ready for any movement towards her. There was only a split-second awareness of someone behind me then a brown forearm was across my throat. I got a glimpse of a second figure slipping around in front of me. It was a turbaned Lascar. I kicked out at him. And the last thing I remembered was the smell of chloroform and the cloth he jammed across my nose and mouth. And the deep, gasping breath my lungs forced me to take when the forearm relaxed a little. That and the sound of oars being put in oarlocks. As somebody jumped into the dinghy and headed for the Scarlet Queen. And then the beach, the island, the whole world pulled away from me and I was too tired to care. I coasted back on was the light that leaked in through my eyelid. Then the nausea. The throbbing in my head. I got my eyes open long enough to realize that the brightness was coming through a window. It was daylight. Broad daylight. That's when I tried to get up and fell back on the cot. Ah, Connie. You're Irish, right from the brink of consciousness. Welcome back to a world of beauty. Yeah. When I can remember of it, I'm sure I like it. Help me up with you, Doc. I've already helped you up. If it hadn't been for me, you'd be well on your way to enriching the soil here on Moon and Jima. Hold it, Doc. It's taken me a while to collect these things. Here, an ammonia ampoule. If you must think, this will help clear it up. My ship, Doc? It's gone. But you're wrong. When you came into the bay out there, in the situation here, it was no longer your ship. It was common property among desperate people. You and I... Happened to lose. My mate Gallagher? Who knows? Even common property himself. Shared between three or four types of flesh-eating fish. My headache's stuck. I can't get very far beyond that yet. I'll mix you something. They brought you here last night. After they plucked you off the beach. With my chloroform, by the way. Uh I was supposed to kill you neatly and silently. Slight swelling in your right arm. At the point of injection. Uh Due to some last-minute loyalty to our common heritage, I lightened the door. Thanks. Yeah. Think this. Yeah. You might say that you have been one milligram away from a heathen grave. My payment, of course, was to be passage out of here with Ramirez. You see, I'm here as a result of my dishonesty to him, no doubt. I feel sorry for you, Doc. Indeed, I feel the same thing myself. Now, if you'll get up on your own two feet instead of lying there like a sick dog, I think you'll feel better. Get a breath of air if you can find some moving. I was halfway to my feet before his last words got through the dizziness. There wasn't any air moving. I stumbled to the door and looked out. The palms and banyans were motionless. That meant one thing to me. The Scarlet Queen had to be under power to make any way. There wasn't enough breeze to even rattle her halyards. My wristwatch read 9 a.m. An hour and ten minutes after the earliest tide she could have crossed the reef on I knew that if I could get high enough, my ship would still be in sight. 
I didn't know why I should torture myself. Maybe it was like hiding in a corner to watch your girl marry another guy. But I pulled what was left of me together and started up the mountain to see where the queen was going with somebody else. The summit was a jumble of rock. I scraped my way to the very top and stood there. Twelve miles of rolling, folded hills and valleys stretched to the north. Three miles of gentle slope to the south. And beyond, in a great circle, empty sea horizon. Not a sail. Not a mast. Not a speck in sight. Then I went down the mountain and back to the compound. It wasn't until then that I felt the new atmosphere of the place. Yesterday had been filled with chattering birds. Now there was nothing but the muttering of the surf against the reef, a leaden sky and humid, oppressive air. I went to the residence house to find Nora, hoping she'd know where our mirrors would make for her. I found a room and knocked. There wasn't any answer. I knocked again, and then I went in. Ah. <laughs> like I say, Connie, mal suerte. But uh, you look surprised to find me waiting for you. After the build-up, what else? What is the build-up when it all falls down? Where's my ship? I wish I knew. I wish I knew so well I was on it. How did you mess after your boy smothered me on the beach? Uh, I make big mistake. I warn you, don't ever trust a woman. Thanks. She took the dinghy right after my boys make the big mistake with you. Yeah, big mistake. They should have smothered her. I think maybe somebody else, too. Who is gone from the island? The girl? Yes. Your chief mate? No. And your Scarlet Queen. I saw her go through the reef. What do you think? From here, that's hard to figure. Where's your last guard crew behind me? Don't worry. My boys crawled away someplace this morning. They say sunrise to red. They say wind going to blow today. You should have crawled with them, Ramirez. This is going to be a good one. See, I know this wind. I think we got out of this house quick. This is no good place for typhoon. You got a better place in mind? Uh, you make good questions, Connie. I say the wind makes us good friends when we were good enemy before. We get out of this house. Fifteen minutes, the wind has taken over the rule of Moon and Jim and everyone on it. Ramirez and I struggled out of the house. Like cattle turned our backs to the blast and huddled together, dependent upon one another. Fighting the power of it, dodging flying branches wincing from the sting of sand and rain that came with the wind. Left no time to think of anything but survival. Suddenly, we all became allies. Dr. Mitchell came out of his collapsing cottage, crawled to us on his hands and knees. And then behind us, half-falling, staggering out of his coma and his quivering house, came Fairfield. Come back! What have you done with her? What have you taken my wife? Yard by yard across the 
That's one devil, that wind. Maybe both of us are lucky to be here instead of drowning on your massless house, Connie. I don't think much of the choice myself. Well, I do. Right now, I'm glad I trusted that woman. Shut up! What for, Professor? You think he doesn't know what kind of... Shut up! It's all right, Connie. I know what it means. But I'd like to find her. The trail leads down to the beach at the bottom of the crater. It was a steep trail. And now and then, when we'd go through a clearing in the dense growth, I began to get a picture of the place. It was a volcanic crater. And the sheer sides made a complete circle with a circumference of about a mile and a half. We were about three quarters of the way down when I caught the glimmer of water. Another hundred yards, and we broke out of the brush and hit the beach. That's when we all stopped. That's when the whole thing took on the feel of a dream. But I was awake, and there with just her bow in sight in the tiny inlet was the Scarlet Queen. I didn't have time to reach for any answers because suddenly with the ship back on the scene, we were no longer allies. Our common enemy was forgotten and Ramirez and I were face to face. But he had a knife and I had an empty holster. I think this is far enough, Connie. Yeah, for one of us it is, Ramirez. Why don't you think this way? You take the island and the woman and I don't hurt you. The beautiful traffic night, Connie. You'll be happy, I tell you. You've been in the tropics too long yourself, Ramirez. That's fever talk. No, I tried to make it easy for you. I go on your ship. I tell you, maybe you die like Mitchell in this storm. What do you think? Well, you make it sound good, Ramirez. You make it sound good. Stay out of there, Phil! The only thing I knew about his knife draw was that he used his right hand, and that's what I made for. taken, but it was long enough to make some changes in the scenery. Our dinghy was pulled up on the beach. Nora was standing there. Next to her was Gallagher. I thought maybe you'd need some help, Skipper, but you did all right, didn't you? I got a few things out of my system, but I got a few more. Now, take it easy, Skipper. You're tired, so calm down. How'd you get here? Wait a minute, Skipper. Come here, you. Fred! Fred, please, Fred! He told me you sent her to the Queen last night, that you were selling her passage to Kobe. Uh! What did he say? Never mind, Fairfield. I believed her. Because she put me wise to Ramirez. He and his Laskers tried to board the Queen at Dawn, but we were ready for him. She said you knew it, too, and were hiding out till it was over. You know how right she was. And then this morning, when I got a load of that typhoon sunrise, she told me about this place, and we came around. And a good thing, too. Yeah. If we put the whole thing off balance, the Queen would never have lived in that bay on the windward side. What's the rest of it, Skipper? I was supposed to be dead. And she was sick of Ramirez. Phil, Red, please let me say something. But you, Gallagher, you're supposed to sail off into the sunset with her. Oh, listen to me. You mean I can go into the sunset with Wait you? Wait a minute. You'll have to choose between her and me, Skipper. Well, when the chips are down, you're really more attractive, Red. <laughs> Glad to hear that, Skipper. I'm blushing with pride. And now shall we leave the fair fields to their island... What's left of it? Yeah. And to their Ramirez, what's left of him? Yeah, Skipper. I think we've wasted enough time on Moon and Jima. 
few hours before sunset, the outside circle of the typhoon has passed, and we headed out of the crater base. I didn't bother to take soundings, but I did sketch an addition to the faulty charts of the island. Under power, we threaded through a narrow channel that the Japanese Navy had dredged from the almost landlocked basin to the open sea. We rounded a rocky point and swung the scarlet figurehead on our bow until she looked out on the course she'd been born to follow. Neither of us knew where that course would lead. When we were free of the rocks and I felt the breeze on my right cheek, I cut the motor. Stand by to make sail! The peaks of Moon Inn still held us in their lee, but the edges of the northeast trade sweeping around them were enough. Skipper. Doing fine, mate. We'll take her a little closer on. We make the north end of the island. That's an island I want to see sink behind the stern. Why you? You didn't have a tough time. Uh, you don't know, Skipper. That woman. She thinks all men are the same kind of man as her kind of woman. If you know what I mean. I think I do, and it reminds me of a friend of mine on Motomachi Street in Kobe. We'll have to look her up. Oh, no, not me. A glass of rice beer is as far as I go into Kobe. Drink, Skipper. Yeah. Hey, what's this? There's lipstick on this bottle. Sure. What do you think she was? A savage? <laughs> Lipstick never hurt you, did it? Ah, uh, go on. Have a drink, Skipper. After you, mate. After you. Log entry. Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled. 6,215. Mainsail and mizzen reefed. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney, Master. The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. For listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, we invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama, or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the matinee, and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.